I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you value this podcast as a free and independent educational resource, you can support the show by making a monthly donation at patreon.com slash wordsforgranted. Thanks to Marcus, John, Jane, and Chris for their recent contributions. In the next few days, I'll be posting a contributors-only bonus episode on Patreon that covers the etymology of meretricious. So that, along with the rest of the back catalog of bonus episodes, could be yours for just a small monthly donation. If you'd prefer to read the episode as a blog post delivered straight to your inbox, go to wordsforgranted.com and sign up for the monthly newsletter. Okay, let's get on to today's episode, the fifth and final part in our series on the lost letters of the English alphabet. Have you ever seen a photo or a photographic replica of the original handwritten Bill of Rights? Its heading says, or at least seems to say, Congress of the United States. Not Congress, but Congress. If you were to get your hands on an original copy of Shakespeare's first folio and turned to its table of contents, you'd find that it says, or seems to say, a catalog of feveral comedies, histories, and tragedies by an author named William Shakespeare. Similarly, if you were to get your hands on a first edition printing of John Milton's Paradise Lost, its title page would say, or seem to say, Paradise Loft. Not only do these 17th and 18th century works contain lowercase f's in words that shouldn't have them, these lowercase f's look a little weird. Rather than having a crossbar that bisects the center of the letter, these Fs have a short nub that juts out only on the left side. As they appear on the pages of these historical texts, words like Shakespeare and Paradise look like mangled imitations of English, but if contemporaries of these texts were to speak these words aloud, they'd sound completely recognizable to us today. And that's because the weird Fs in Congress, Feveral, Histories, Shakespeare, and Paradise are not Fs at all. These lowercase Fs are really lowercase Ss, more specifically, an archaic form of lowercase S that's today known as Long S. You can see a digital rendering of this letter in the title of this episode in your podcast player, but if you're not driving, I do recommend googling long S to give you a better sense of what this letter looked like in print and actual handwriting. This F-looking S has a long history of usage that began not in English, but in Latin. So let's turn to the original source of this letter and then work our way forward through the chronological timeline to English. When we think of the way that Latin was written during the Roman Empire, the first thing that probably comes to mind are Roman square capitals. Roman square capitals are the script that was used in the famous inscriptions on Trajan's Column, the Arch of Titus, and the Pantheon. With its elegant combination of thick and thin strokes and straight lines and curvy lines, this script would go on to become the basis of the capital letters found in all descendants of the Latin script today. This stately script was used for imperial inscriptions and is certainly the most famous of classical Latin scripts, but it wasn't the only Latin script in the days of imperial Rome. In fact, 
most written Latin that took place on a mundane day-to-day -day basis didn't look anything like the Roman square capitals. Day-to-day -day informal Latin was written in a script called Roman cursive, which, as you might expect, was a sloppier-looking, easier-to-write script that had its own distinct ways of rendering the Latin letters. This Roman cursive would evolve over time, eventually developing into the scripts known as Merovingian and Carolingian during the 7th and 8th centuries. These cursive scripts were distinctly minuscule, or lowercase. By the 8th century, majuscule scripts, or uppercase scripts, and minuscule scripts had each established unique ways of writing letters that weren't just big and small versions of the same symbol. We have remnants of these disparities today between the upper and lowercase forms of many letters. A lowercase a is not just a smaller version of an uppercase a. A lowercase b is not just a smaller version of an uppercase b, and so on. As these uppercase and lowercase, or majuscule and minuscule, distinctions came into their own, the overall shape of minuscule s became straighter and more stretched out than its uppercase counterpart. The emergence of a minuscule long s didn't cause the more familiar minuscule rounded s, as it's known, to fall out of existence. Rounded s is the form of lowercase s we use today. For the rest of this episode, I'm going to refer to rounded s as short s in order to more easily contrast it with long s in our short s long s dichotomy. Anyway, in many historical scripts and typographies from the 8th through 19th centuries, so over a thousand years, long s and short s coexisted side by side. Although the long S emerged in Latin, it was most influential on the vulgar languages of Western Europe, English, French, German, etc. The choice of whether you'd use long S versus short S wasn't random. At different points in history and in different languages, their usage was governed by general rules. During the 8th century, long S was often used at the end of words. However, this was a short-lived convention that directly contradicts the most predominant rules for long s versus short s usage found in later centuries, particularly in printing. Acknowledging that there are exceptions in certain regions, typefaces, and time periods, we can generally say that between the 12th and 19th centuries, the most common cross-linguistic rules concerning the usage of long s versus short s are that long s is used at the beginning of words and in the middle of words, so initially and medially, and short s is used at the end of words, so terminally. Note that this short s did not have a capital form. All capital s's were rounded s's. At the start of this episode, you'll recall that I read the word congress as congrefs, where the f sound represented a misreading of a long s. Given the rules I just laid out, this spelling of c-o-n-g-r-e long s short s fits the bill. The long s is in the middle of the word, while the short s is the last letter in the word. Well, what about my mispronunciation of Shakespeare from Shakespeare's first folio? Again, the F sound represents a deliberate mispronunciation of a long S. That long S does indeed appear in the middle of the word, so it fits the rules I've described. But 
What about the initial S in Shakespeare's name? Wouldn't that S be written as a long S according to the rules? In most words, yes, but Shakespeare is a proper noun, and at this point in history, proper nouns had acquired their modern rules of capitalization. And again, you'll recall that I said the long S versus short S rules only applied to lowercase s, not uppercase s. Since this is a podcast primarily about the English language, let's take a deeper look at some of the other historical rules and exceptions around the usage of long S versus short S. As I've mentioned in previous episodes in this series, discussing archaic spellings and lost letters is inherently visual, and I'm at a real disadvantage here using the medium of audio to tell you about all of this. But... If you pull up the show notes in your podcast player, I've listed out actual examples that correspond to what I'm about to share to better contextualize all of this. So if you can, I recommend pulling those up while you listen to the next few minutes of the show. Here's a list of five more granular rules about long S versus short S usage that were commonly followed by printers in modern English. Number one, short S is used before apostrophes. We most frequently see this in archaic renderings of past tense verbs where the ed ending is abbreviated as apostrophe d. Instead of spelling words such as used or closed with ed, early modern English poetic works may spell them as us apostrophe d and clos apostrophe d, respectively. Even though in both of these examples the s is in the middle of the word, because of the apostrophe, it would have been written as a short S, not a long S. Rule two, short S is used before or after a lowercase f, regardless of its position within a word. Considering the similarity in appearance between lowercase f and long S, this exception was ostensibly to help readers avoid confusion. Rule three, During the 17th and first half of the 18th centuries, short s was used before the letters b and k in the middle of words. This is an odd exception that I can't explain. Around halfway through the 18th century, the long s before b and k had become common, and this was due to a new typeface that was imported to England which contained ligatures combining the long s with b and k. Rule 4. Long S was used before hyphens. These might appear in compound words or in line breaks that divide a word into two parts due to spacing. And lastly, rule five. Long S is maintained in abbreviations even when it's the last letter in that abbreviation. For example, if you were to abbreviate Genesis, as in the book of the Bible, as G-E-N-E-S, that final S would be a long S, even though it's technically the last letter in the word, and normally that would be rendered as a short S. I did say that I wanted to keep our discussion of long S restricted to English, but there is one thing about the historical usage of long S in German that I think is worth mentioning. If you've ever visited Germany as a non-German speaker that knows nothing about the German language, you may have noticed an unfamiliar letter that sort of looks like a B on street signs, particularly in the word for street itself. The German word for street is Strasse, which certainly doesn't have a B in it. That uniquely German letter that looks like a B is called Esset, and it's actually a ligature comprising long S and Z, whose origins date back to the late medieval period. 
In the previous episode in this series, we discussed ligatures at length. As a refresher, ligatures are when two letters are joined together to form a single character. They were once ubiquitous across languages written with the Latin script, but aside from very specific instances, they're now actually quite rare. The German eset is one of the few ligatures in a Latin-derived script that has the status of a distinct letter within a language. Aside from the eset, long s is a historical relic among the languages that once used it. So, what happened? The short answer is that, beginning in the mid to late 18th century, all across Europe, printers began using new typefaces, and these new typefaces lacked the long s. The only lowercase s they contained was the short round s. In England, the man most responsible for the death of long s in printed English texts was John Bell. Bell was an influential publisher and bookseller who, in 1788, commissioned the most prominent type founder of the day to create a new modern typeface that specifically eliminated the long s. After this innovation, other new typefaces followed in suit. By the 1810s, long s had mostly disappeared from newly printed works. Within roughly the same time frame, similar developments took place in the typefaces of other European countries. Long S was still printed in sermons and some works of literature through the rest of the 19th century, but these were rare exceptions. While Long S rapidly declined in printed English during the 19th century, it managed to hang on for a bit longer in handwritten English. The reasons for this are probably a mixed bag of old habits dying hard, pedantic conservatism, and deliberate attempts by writers to seem refined. After the waning of long s in printed English, its most common usage in handwritten English was as the first of two s's when two s's appear back to back. So in words such as miss, congress, possess, and countless others that have two s's next to each other, the first of these two s's would be written as a long s, and the second would be written as a short s, regardless of the letter's position within a word. Like many of the lost letters we've looked at in this series, long s lives on in the international phonetic alphabet. In the IPA, long s is the symbol for the voiceless post-alveolar fricative sound, aka the sh sound represented in English by the sh digraph. Long s also lives on as the integral symbol in calculus. Chosen by the German mathematician Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, Long S was meant to represent the Latin word summa, meaning sum. Long S is the last truly lost letter we'll be looking at in this series, but before saying goodbye to this topic and moving on to the next one, I'd like to briefly tell you about a lost quasi-letter that hasn't really been lost. The ampersand. Ampersand, as many of you probably know, is the name for the and sign, that squiggly symbol that I still don't know how to write correctly. Now, you might be saying, that's not a letter, that's a symbol, like the plus sign, or the dollar sign, or an asterisk, and technically, you're right. But for many centuries, the ampersand was actually included at the end of the Latin alphabet as the final letter, I guess you would call it, because what else do you call one of the symbols in the alphabet? The earliest attestation of ampersand's inclusion in the Latin alphabet dates to the 11th century in the writings of a British monk and scholar named Bertfirth. But why? 
The ampersand was likely included in the alphabet because it's actually a ligature of the letters E and T. A ligature, again, is when two letters are joined together to make a single character. In Latin, the word for and, well, one of the words for and, was et, and like the English and, the Latin et was an extremely common word in both speech and writing. In any given manuscript, a scribe might write et hundreds or even thousands of times. Because et comprises just two letters, rather than laboriously writing e and t as two separate letters, in the first century CE, Latin writers began using the et ligature to save time. This was the beginning of the ampersand as we know it. The ligature, like the word it represented, was called et. As discussed in the previous episode in this series, one of the main reasons ligatures were so popular in writing before the printing press is because texts were written by hand, and ligatures helped scribes save time. The earliest attestation of the et ligature, the ancestor of the modern ampersand, comes in the form of anonymous vulgar Latin graffiti unearthed among the ruins of the ancient city of Pompeii. The entire city of Pompeii was buried under ashes from a volcanic eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 CE, which gives us the latest possible date by which this ligature could have emerged. Originally, the ampersand looked like a capital E with the bottom horizontal stroke missing and a perpendicular line extending downward from E's middle stroke. If you can envision that in your mind, this vertical perpendicular line connecting with the middle stroke of the capital E formed a small capital T. But because the et ligature always stood alone as a word unto itself, scribes began to get creative with its shape, causing the ligature to resemble its constituent letters less and less over time. The form of the ampersand used today became standardized in the Carolingian minuscule script in the 9th century. There were other stylistically distinct iterations of the ampersand that emerged in different scripts between then and now, but for the most part, these other variations are now extinct. In modern handwriting, the ampersand is often simplified to a backwards three with a line through it, or even to a loopy kind of plus sign, though, strictly speaking, this latter symbol isn't exactly an ampersand. Now, if the ampersand was called et in Latin, where did this somewhat unusual-sounding word, ampersand, come from? Contrary to a popular folk etymology, it is not a contraction of ampers and. This story goes that the 19th-century French mathematician André-Marie Ampère was particularly fond of using the and sign, and thus it came to be known as ampers and in English. But this is entirely false. Ampersand is actually a slurred pronunciation of the phrase and per se and. Recall that the ampersand used to be included at the end of the Latin alphabet. In as recently as the 19th century, the ampersand was often included at the end of the English alphabet as well. Historically, in the recitation of the English alphabet, for letters that could also be used as words unto themselves, including a, i, and o, it was customary for schoolchildren to follow the name of the letter with the phrase per se, as in a per se a, i per se i, and o per se o. In Latin, per se literally meant by itself or unto itself, and our sense of this phrase in English today is similar. 
we use per se when we want to take something out of context and describe it unto itself or in its own right. So I per se I, for example, in the context of the recitation of the alphabet, meant I by itself is the word I. When school children got to the end of their recitation of the alphabet and came to the symbol we today call ampersand, they would have originally said and per se and. This suggests that the original name of the ampersand was merely the word it represented, and. We're not exactly sure when or where the slurring of and per se and to ampersand took place, but by the mid-19th century, this new Mondegrine becomes widely attested in a wide range of different kinds of texts, most notably in new publications of educational textbooks for schoolchildren. And yes, you heard me right, I said the word Mondegrine. If you're not one of the privileged few who happens to know what a Mondegrine is, it's when you mishear a word or phrase as something else. It's most often used in the context of mishearing song lyrics. It's a neologism from 1954, coined by the American writer Sylvia Wright, who misheard a line from a Scottish ballad, Laid Him on the Green, as Lady Mondegreen. Anyway, it's interesting to note that ampersand wasn't the original mispronunciation of and per se and. The earlier form, ampacy, is attested for the first time in 1706, predating the earliest attestation of ampersand by over a century. Though I've never heard it myself, according to my research, ampacy is still used today in some regions of the UK as a variant pronunciation of ampersand. Whether we call it ampacy, ampersand, et, or the and sign, that symbol is no longer listed as the 27th letter of the English alphabet. By the late 19th century, it was no longer being included in children's school books as part of the alphabet. And that's because... Well, the reason may have to do with the alphabet song, the one we all know today. The alphabet song, though it might seem like something that's existed from time immemorial, isn't that old. It was copyrighted in 1835. With the alphabet song's melody being what it is, the inclusion of ampersand after the concluding cadence of W, X, Y, and Z doesn't exactly work. Although the ampersand would still be published in some works as the final letter in the alphabet after 1835, the gradual rise in popularity of the alphabet song over the subsequent decades overlaps with the gradual decline of the alphabetized ampersand. A coincidence? Maybe, maybe not. But that's the best potential factor I could find that explains why the ampersand is no longer listed at the end of our English alphabet. All right, that's it for today's episode and our series on the lost letters of the English alphabet. I hope you had a great time listening. Again, if you love the show, I encourage you to leave a rating and review wherever you listen to the podcast. And again, if you want to support my research and the regular output of this show, you can become a monthly contributor at patreon.com slash wordsforgranted or make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash wordsforgranted. In the next episode of the podcast, we'll be moving on to a brand new series. But before we do that, I'll be sharing an interview I did with linguist Erica Ockrent about her wonderful new book, Highly Irregular, Why Tough, Through, and Doe Don't Rhyme in Other Oddities of the English Language. 
So keep your eyes peeled for that, and I'll talk to you soon here at Words for Granted.